Dr. McNamara. We'll need an arrest subject. Mr. Kinney. Yes, sir. Would you come up and give us a hand, please? Yes, sir. Mr. Kinney is going to help us simulate a typical arrest and disarming procedure. Mr. Kinney, use your gun in a threatening manner. Point it at Ed 209. Yes, sir. Put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. I think you'd better do what he says, Mr. Kenny. You now have 15 seconds to comply. You are in direct violation of Penal Code 113, Section 9. You now have 5 seconds to comply. Echo Station 3TA. We have spotted Imperial Walker. Imperial Walker's on the north bridge. Film 89 podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm one of the editors over at a little website called film89.co.uk. And sitting to my left tonight is one of my fellow writers at Film 89, my good friend, Mr. Steve Amos. Hello, Sky, how are you? 39th episode, Steve. 39? 39th and, episode. And this is a very special one. This is indeed a very special episode. Okay, so as uh, listeners will be aware, I, I do like to give as much of a, a long-winded introduction to our guests as possible, and, and tonight's guest in particular is, is worthy of such an introduction, because tonight our guest is someone for whom we have the utmost admiration and respect of Film 89 Towers. He is a legend in the field of visual effects, specialising in creature design, character animation, as well as being a director and producer whose contribution to film will be held in the same regard as the likes of Willis O'Brien, Dick Smith, Rick Baker, Douglas Trumbull, Jim Henson, Dennis Muran, Stan Winston, Rob Bottin, Stuart Freeborn, and of course, the great Ray Harryhausen. He was an integral part of George Lucas's original Star Wars trilogy, having worked on the Cantina creatures and holographic chess pieces on the Millennium Falcon in 1977's Star Wars. He was also responsible for breathing life to the Tauntauns and the Imperial Walkers from the incredible Battle of Hoth in The Empire Strikes Back. 
He populated Jabba's palace with all manner of weird and wonderful creatures in Return of the Jedi. He's worked on Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. He created the iconic Ed 209 from my personal all-time favourite film, Robocop. He then brought to life the titular monster from Robocop 2 and was co-producer and responsible for the incredible blending of practical model and computer-generated special effects on Starship Troopers, and that is to name but a few, in a career that's seen him win numerous accolades and awards, including two Academy Awards for his incredible work on Return of the Jedi and Jurassic Park. He's the artist who Steven Spielberg described as the greatest stop-motion creator and the greatest animator of his generation. It gives us the greatest pleasure to welcome to Film 89, Mr. Phil Thanks. Phil, if I could just start with, please, if you could just tell us how your career in film and special effects began. Brief or detailed? Choose one. I will go for detailed. So, um, yeah, 1955, I was uh, just about five years old, and uh, they happened to be running King Kong on television. And that's what, that was really the first you know, thing that I saw that kind of fired my imagination as I didn't have any idea how that was accomplished. And uh, that led to a, a lifelong interest in uh, prehistoric life and dinosaurs and anthropology. And I uh, was very inspired by the, uh, around the same time, Life Magazine came out with a series called Life Through Time. And they had uh, reproductions of Rudolph Salinger's murals at the Museum of Natural History in New York, and so I, I kind of grew up salivating all over those, and then like in 1958, uh, Ray Harryhausen's picture, uh, Seven Forge of Sinbad, came out, and that's what really kind of galvanized everything for me. I still didn't have the faintest clue as to what I was looking at in terms of the, you know, incredible monsters, but I think that the First time that Cyclops come out, comes out of a cha cave chasing the ma uh, magician, that was uh, that was kind of really when a bolt of lightning struck me, and then I spent the next number of years trying to figure out how that was accomplished. And it wasn't until I ran across a, a periodical uh, called Famous Monsters of Filmland, edited by Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a friend of Ray Harryhausen's, and Forey had. Um, a number of articles on Ray that, that you know, uh, on a very elementary level, uh, uh, describe the stop motion process. And so that, that all kind of began like right there. You kind of jumped in at the deep end, really, because one of your first major jobs was, was actually working on George Lucas's 1977 Star Wars. Am I right? Actually, you know, there was actually a pretty protracted, you know, history before that. Where I had, you know, made movies all of my life. As soon as I could save up enough money to buy an eight millimeter camera, when I was about ten years old, I started experimenting with animation. And then uh, I uh, worked for a number of years with a uh, with an independent filmmaker, Bill Stromberg, working on his own uh, production of a Ray Bradbury story called *The Sound of Thunder*, that was about a dinosaur hunt back in the past. And then I got a job at Cascade Pictures of California and Hollywood after I graduated college with a BA in, in fine art. And that was really the, our uh, graduate school. That's where I met Dennis Muren and Ken Ralston and a, a number of people. And uh, my mentors were Jim Danforth and Dave Allen. So we just learned a lot very quickly because the turnaround was pretty quick for these commercials. And it was a really great education. At that time, uh, 
before before that, actually, I, I was uh, at, at uh, um, UC Irvine in California, and I worked for the art gallery. And one of the guys in the art gallery was a uh, a Navy buddy of this guy that was working on the science fiction movie, and he was looking for people to help him. And so I gave this guy a call, and it turned out it was Richard Evelyn. And so I called up Richard, and he said he was looking for camera people, and that was my thing. But I gave him Dennis Murin's number, and Richard hired Dennis, and Dennis hired Ken Ralston, and so they, they went to work on Star Wars. They were on the night crew, so I would go visit them, have dinner with them at night. And then later in the production, uh, uh, George wasn't really happy with the material he had gotten for the cantina scene. And so he hired our buddy Rick Baker to kind of oversee making a, a bunch of space aliens for insert photography, in, insert scenes for the cantina scene. And so uh, Rick hired uh, about four of us out of work stop motion animators and Rob Boteen, and we made as many space aliens as we could in about six weeks. And then we went uh, to a little insert stage on La Brea Avenue in Hollywood, and George directed, and Carol Ballard shot, uh, was the DP. And so we put the boot masks on, and were dressed up in costumes, and we actually played the aliens that we made. And around that time, uh, George would come by once a week to check out our progress, and he saw a stop-motion uh, puppet that I'd made when I was a kid. And that, uh, previously, he was going to use people in outfits or, or suits to be the holographic figures. And Michael Crichton had just come out with Future World and did a similar thing, and George didn't want to repeat that and thought that the stop motion process would be a lot more fun. So he hired John Berg and myself to, and, and this is right at the very, very end of the production, the last couple of weeks to make about 10 stop-motion space aliens and we made them really quickly and took them over to ILM and Dennis looked the shot and we shot it over about three days. And that was that, that was our, our introduction to, to Star Wars. Uh, prior to that, I'd worked on a couple of other uh, you know projects like Bill Stromberg's uh, Crater Lake Monster of theatrical feature, and uh, while I was doing uh, Star Wars, I was juggling, uh, or immediately after Star Wars, I did Joe Dante's uh, Piranha. So that's where the whole ball started rolling, and then once uh, George was like mounting Empire Strikes Back, I was uh, you know, one of the members of the, the team in LA that moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area to do the Empire. So, so in terms of time then, Phil, in between your graduation and then subsequently landing that job on Star Wars, how, how, how long a sort of time frame are we looking at there? Well, it wasn't that long, actually. Yeah, I was probably not, not more than two or three years, probably closer to two. Uh, can I ask you, what your frame of reference was at the time? Because today, this you know, the fantasy and science fiction is so prevalent, you can often refer to things. But back then, this is all in its infancy. And I was just wondering how you came up with these these designs because there was nothing that you could have used previously to refer to. I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I just kind of made the stuff up, you know. <laughs> and you know, I, I always you know do and drew things and design things. I, I worked for about a year on another project that never got made for Jim Danforth called Time Gate with a, a expedition 
uh, going back to, uh, to hunt dinosaurs. So I was, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was always sculpting and making stuff up. The people that were interested in this stuff, you could count on one hand, really. And a lot of people were inspired, uh, you know, by, you know, Ray or Jack Pierce or, or you know, whoever. And, you know, I found a lot of people like to um, make duplicates of the things that they were fans of. And I just wasn't interested in that at all. I just wanted to make up things that I had not seen before, which is still kind of how I'm operating. Uh, you say that uh, that the number of people who were interested in this kind of thing was very few. Is it true that your parents actually called a psychologist to speak to you when you were a child because they they were worried where you were going? Uh, well, my parent, well, my mom was worried about me. My dad wasn't, but no, I never talked to anybody at all. But anecdotally, I heard about this years later. <laughs> so, but I was also dyslexic, and they thought I was retarded, and you know, I don't know, might be on the spectrum someplace. So. Yeah, people were worried about me, but I wasn't worried. Phil, obviously, you, you mentioned you know working on Star Wars with the likes of you know you, you know effectively friends, which you'd kind of you know come up with in, in the, the years preceding Star Wars. What what was the atmosphere like working on Star Wars? And did any of you ever think that you were participating in something that would become just such a huge cultural phenomenon? No, nobody had a clue what was going on. I mean, when we uh, were doing. Um, uh, the first Star Wars, you know, George took us to the screening room at ILM and he ran us the cantina scene and the, uh, and the, the uh, chess scene as he had an assembly cut together. And we were all fans of, of THX and American Graffiti and you know, we're avid uh, film goers, not just you know, into like, sci-fi and monsters and whatnot, but the film history as well. And we knew, it, you know, we were just so happy to be working on something that was cool with a, with a uh, filmmaker that knew what he was doing, <clears throat> because we, we could not work in uh, commercial Hollywood uh, cinema. We could do like some low budget stuff, but the unions prevented us from working. So George set up ILM on the outskirts of the unions, union jurisdiction, which allowed us to work. I mean, we were in the unions, but that's how he was able to get away with it. And so in terms of design, you know, uh, for example, for the Tauntaun, uh, George asked me to come up with uh, some ideas of what the snow lizard could be. And uh, that was about it. That was about the direction. So I just spent a couple of days just banging out like uh, about a dozen different drawings, pencil, very simple line drawings on paper. You know, it could be this or that or this or that and sent it to him, and he picked one, and uh, asked to see a three-dimensional maquette of it. And that was, you know, pretty much our, you know, uh, working relationship uh, throughout the rest of our, you know, uh, you know, the time we, we worked together. Can you explain for us, obviously this being an audio interview and not a visual medium, are you able to explain to us how go motion differs from regular stop motion animation? Yeah, well, from the beginning of, of stop motion, uh, certain people that, were, that did stop motion were interested in trying to integrate, uh, you know, a more of a, a, a photographic um, representational uh, aspect of, you know, live action. And you know, Ladislav Sterovich did some experimentation with it, and also, I mean, uh, Jim Danforth had done some stuff, but it was really... You know, um, you know, time-consuming and nothing ever looked that good. 
but you know, as soon as I you know would go over and, and Dennis, uh, visit Dennis and, and Ken on the night crew on ILM and was introduced to the motion control technology, I realized, and we all realized at, at the same time that that uh, if we could integrate the motion control technology with stop motion, then what that would do is it would allow us to hook up a stop motion puppet to a computer driven well, kind of a lathe bed and, um, and which is how we created the Tauntaun. Kim Ralston and I shot some tests with a, a creature that I made for Piranha because we didn't have any other stop motion puppets and one afternoon we shot a bunch of tests and it worked great. And the way it, it worked is it's, it's uh, you know attempting to become as close as possible to affecting um, you know, the motion blur that you get from uh, conventional photography. So as the 180 degree shutter spins around when you're shooting live action uh, horse or something like that, you get this characteristic blur that kind of blends the frames. I and mean, you know, hitherto, stop motion is, is like taking a bunch of still photographs of, of an object. And so each edge is like super sharp, which kind of gives stop motion its particular uh, aesthetic look and, and distinction, which I actually kind of liked, but but as the kind of B, you know, uh, sci-fi, you know, fantastic movies were turning into like the more A, larger budgeted pictures, it was imperative to, um, to uh, you know, just try and uh, bring it up a couple of notches and to integrate the characters into the live action more seamlessly. One of the films you've already mentioned is uh, is Piranha. Is it true that you, in that film that you actually appeared as one of the scuba divers? Yeah, I get eaten by the piranhas that I design. <laughs> <laughs> Joe and, and my buddy John Davison, who I went on to do Robo and Robocop 2 and Starship Troopers with, uh, John's a big stop, and Joe are big stop motion fans as well. They thought it would be amusing to have the guy that made the rubber fish get eaten by him. <laughs> So going back to your work on on Empire Strikes Back, now the the Battle of Hoth is known for being you know one of the most complex go motion sequences. How did you approach the, the sort of mammoth task of bringing the Imperial Walkers to life? Because obviously, unlike your work on Star Wars, where the stop motion was seen very briefly, you know this forms like a considerable part of the of the first act of the film. Uh, well, the, the the walkers weren't go motion at all. They were all just conventional stop motion animation. You know, but they you know. Stop motion begins to show its characteristics the faster that something has, has to move, and the walkers were just slow, plodding things with very incremental movements. And they were robotic, so it seemed to you know, blend itself you know, really well to just being conventional stop motion. Right, so obviously just to clarify then, um, the, the go motion obviously would be better suited to something that moves fast, kind of like the tauntaun, whereas obviously with with the, the... Right, and can you clear this up for us? The Imperial Walkers are known as AT-ATs, but then a lot of people call them AT-ATs. What, 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 what is the, the actual you know, way to say that? You got me. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we just call them the Walkers. The Walkers, right. How much, if any, input were you able to give in the in the, the design of the Imperial Walkers, given that you would be animating them? Were you able to make suggestions as to the practicalities of the models, and and you know you would be the the person animating them and moving them? You know, were they just designed, and then you would have to work with those designs, or, or was you know Lucas open to your sort of creative input in how they looked? Uh, yeah, I was not involved with the design at all. Joe Johnston uh, was the designer of them, and he worked very closely with my buddy John Burr, who created a, 
a prototype. So they kind of John worked on the engineering side, and you know, he and Joe would go back and forth and came up with the final design. Um, yeah, I just uh, as soon as we had uh, a mock-up of the stop-motion character, that's when you know I would just start uh, experimenting with you know what the walk cycles could be and what the character of the thing was, and so I would just spend you know uh, all day long for the better part eight months or a year as we're doing pre-production, just, uh, you know, just trying to hone that in and find the character. So go, going on to, obviously you've mentioned, you know, your friend John Davison, who would become the producer of RoboCop. How, how did you end up getting that particular job? Well, John's a big fan of stop motion. And uh, as soon as uh, a, a project landed that he wanted to do, you know, the Edge of Nine character was something that, and since we worked on Piranha together, we did become friends. And uh, yeah, so he just hired me to uh, to to do um, the the Edge of Nine. You know, I went down and worked with Paul a bit, who he didn't have um, really you know any uh, background in that stuff, so it was kind of an education for him. And we didn't have a lot of money, so. Um, uh, yeah, uh, we uh, I, I designed everything to be shot very much like a Ray Harryhausen picture, kind of like with Dynamation, except I, I really wanted um, all the backgrounds to be shot on a, on a large format camera instead of you know uh, Ray just used like a, a four-perf you know format for all of his films, which tends to be kind of soft and grainy, and the the stop motion puppets are very sharp. And so I wanted a bigger format uh, that would be a lot more clear and sharp, like the stop motion puppets, so that they integrated better. So that's how we went about, you know, doing that. That work. Uh, what was it like working with somebody like Paul Verhoeven? Because uh, he's known as very, uh, should we say, expressionistic director, very hands-on, very uh, energetic. Is it? Is he very, very different to the, the usual director that you come across? Well, I, I, you know, I, you know, I was kind of more philosophically in line with Paul than, you know, say Lucas or Spielberg, who were, you know, much more, you know, for a, a broader audience and, um, you know, more kind of PG-ish. And, and Paul was, you know, the opposite extreme and liked to deal with, you know, political issues. And so it was just a little bit more meaty, you know, uh, material to deal with. And I worked a lot with the writer too at, at Newmeyer developing stuff. Yeah, so things things were going, you know, Paul just didn't really, we didn't have a whole lot of money on RoboCop. So uh, um, the way that Paul designed the scenes, the, one of the ways that we would have had to have done it if we we're going to be using primarily stop motion animation puppets was to shoot against uh, blue screen. I don't actually like doing that that much. And, uh, you know, compositing at that time wasn't digital. It was it was kind of a pain in the ass. And depending upon the optical house you got, you know, you were kind of at the whim of, uh, you know, whoever was doing the work at the time. And so uh, what I proposed to Paul was, you know, uh, uh, just doing the same thing that Willis O'Brien did in King Kong for a number, and then we went on to do in Starship Troopers and in Jurassic Park, was to do a split between doing large uh, full-scale props that worked on the set and um, just made sure that the continuity, continuity and the choreography between the two were appropriate for, for those techniques and that they would blend together across cuts. So what I proposed to Paul was that uh, we build a 
onset life size uh, uh, version of Ed 209 that would uh, and design the scene around its ambulatory shots being stop motion. But then when Ronnie Cox gives his big speech to have the, the big robot come out and kind of power down and stop, so it's not moving at all, it's just waiting there, and to kind of keep it alive by like a, a sound effect, a bass pedal note that kept its character alive, it's kind of an intimidating tone in the room. And so Paul got into that, it was a cinematic solution. He immediately, you know, bought into that and that allowed us to get those kinds of shots. And then I, I, while I was working on Empire, I ran into this kid who was like barely 20, Craig Hayes, who turned out to be a remarkable designer and engineer. And so I hired Craig to design Ed 209, and he, you know, kind of single-handedly with his girlfriend, built the Ed 209 full-scale prop in a little garage in San Rafael. And uh, we just pulled it all together and hauled the the, uh, the thing out to uh, to Dallas, Texas, and and shot all the background plates and the stuff with the with the full scale head, and that's how we did it. With, with regards to 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 add to a nine Phil, obviously you you mentioned in 1933 King Kong is 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 the film that sort of gave you initial inspiration. Now that creature in that film, even though it was 1933, was a very sort of expressive creature. You know, it had an animated face. You could feel the pain when he was being shot. You know, by the biplanes. You know, on top of the Empire State. With regards to characters that you've worked with, like you know the act that's in particular Ed Two Hundred Nine and and Kane in RoboCop Two, how were you able to sort of imbue into those characters who have got no ability to express? But you you know, how do you approach the problem of actually giving them a character? Because you know, for example, there's that bit at the end of RoboCop where Ed Two Hundred Nine gets obliterated and then his legs sort of you know walk along for a bit and then they fall over and you've you've just inserted that little foot quiver is it like little things like that that you add and come up with yourself in order to sort of just give them an extra sort of bit of personality because they can't convey you know emotion or anything like that from the beginning uh you know it was the intention of robocop that that had a humorous side to it the the entire picture uh, you know, he played Ed as kind of this Caliban character, as, you know, this very threatening, malevolent, you know, kind of a thinking, uh, sentient tank. Uh, and that was in the script, you know. So you just kind of like an actor, you just intuit what that should be. Uh, just while I was just preparing to do the shot, actually beginning to shoot the shot where that you mentioned of uh, Ed 209, you know, coming in after Robocop has blown his head off. Uh, John Davison called me up and said, can you do something funny? Uh, the, um, uh, the movie's getting too heavy and we need something light here and more comedic. And, he, and John had like, kind of pushed me to do you know, some stuff more comedically, like uh, the big robot falling down the stairs and, and you know, jumping around like a mad you know, insect at the, at the bottom of the stairs. And so I just did it. And just play, tried to play it for for humor, and that yeah, a little foot twitch. You know, I stole from Willis O'Brien. He would do stuff like that, or you know, little little details like the Tyrannosaurus and Kong scratching his ear, or like the Stegosaurus's tail twitches at the at the end of the Stegosaurus scene in Kong. So it was just you know, still you know, kind of taking those tropes and working them into you know the the robot. Tell us about the creation of, of Robo Kane in, in Robocop 2, because that particular piece, it's almost, from a design point of view, has the appearance of a go-motion armature, because 
compared to the the relatively simplistic design of Ed 209, Kane is just it's it's like a Swiss Army knife robot in, in many ways. Was was that the kind of intention of of Craig to sign it kind of make it you know, a lot more complex? I mean, the story behind that was Craig was kind of pissed off because when uh, Robocop, you know, came out, Japanese came out with a, with a bunch of vinyl model kits of uh, Ed 209 and, and duplicated it. So it was kind of bad. It was not the motivating factor for Craig, but, you know, he kind of, in a way, wanted to create something that was so complicated nobody would ever be able to duplicate it again. And, yeah, actually they did. But, uh, yeah, a really, a really complicated thing. I mean, Craig worked very closely with uh, you know, Tom Santamon, who was like a master uh, builder of stop-motion armatures, and it was uh, you know, the, certainly the most elaborate stop-motion puppet you know, any of us that ever, ever worked with. Yeah. Um, a t- massive turning point in uh, special effects history was CGI, and I know you've been very open in the past about the impact that you had on you. Uh, is that something you could tell us, us about now and how CG has changed the industry? Uh, yeah, I mean, it really wasn't the, I mean, I'm very close friends with Dennis Muir, and he would bring me on as a consultant, say, for um, Young Sherlock, which was the first thing that, uh, you know, really used computer graphics for a character, and, you know, I almost kind of lead the crest of the wave for, you know, switching over uh, to doing digital compositing, and some of the stuff that uh, Dennis did in, uh, and Willow, they used morphing to blend between characters that that changed their form. So I, I was aware of all that stuff. And you know, Jim Cameron wanted me to uh, do this very elaborate thing that involves stop motion animation for the abyss for the water snake creature. You know, I just said there's no way. You know, I'm going to get do that, but you should talk to Dennis. And um, so he did, and so they created that. So I was aware of the, that history and the timeline of, of how, you know, computer graphic character stuff was, was being developed. And then, uh, you know, when we were doing Jurassic, we were going to do it much more conventionally with stop and we go motion and um, high-speed puppets and Stan Winston's stuff. So Mark Pay and Steve Williams at ILM took it upon themselves just to, you know, do some experiments to prove that it could be done uh, uh, with a uh, character could be made uh, digitally that was a convincing creature and uh, Stephen gave them some money to do some experiments and they turned out really well and so he said that's the way the movie's going to be done. And obviously Jurassic Park alongside films like Terminator 2 that turned things around and there was a sea change where CGI kind of became the dominant special effects tool you know for the, for the next few decades but then in, in the last few years, we've definitely seen a turn in the tide again, ever so slightly, back to practical effects, certainly with the latest Star Wars films, which have employed you know, a greater proportion of practical effects than you know, most recent big-budget blockbuster films in, in recent years. Why, why do you think we're seeing you know, an increase again in, in popularity of practical effects over CGI all of a sudden? Uh, you know, I think a lot of the you know filmmakers that are out there, you know, they they were fans of the you know older stuff and really did appreciate the you know what you get from practical onset things. Certainly, you know, the actors benefit uh, from it. Um, you know, having something that that is there in front of them, and you know the you know DP and the director can actually you know do some stuff. And people, you know, generally. 
production's usually chicken out with that kind of stuff because, you know, it takes more time and it's easier just to shoot an empty background plate. But, you know, if you, know, you get an 800-pound gorilla like J.J. Uh, Abrams or Christopher Nolan who really appreciates the, the quality you get out of something that's real in photographing that, then, you know, they, they can, you know, move that dial. I mean, I think it was Roger Ebert that said, uh, you know, uh, stop motion looks fake that feels real and computer graphics looks real but feels fake. With regards to your work on Starship Troopers, which a film that we personally think is alongside Jurassic Park, one of the best examples of a perfect blend of different special effects techniques. You've got models, you've got CG and practical effects, all kind of perfectly balanced and using the right tool for the right job. What was it like working on that film and then transitioning from effects work into directing when you made Starship Troopers 2? Well, I mean, yeah, Starship Troopers was really the, you know, that was the biggest project that I had ever done on, on that scale. And technologically, you know, I, it was, you know, just uh, it followed right on the heels of Jurassic Park. So it was really daunting, you know, just, you know, I had to switch my studio from doing photographic effects. And then in Jurassic Park, you know, we had about, you know, half a dozen dinosaurs and say like 50 shots. And now we have like thousands of bugs and like, you know, over 200 shots. You know, so that was really daunting, just planning and figuring that out. But Paul's very good. Um, you know, he had uh, two producers on the film, John Davison and, and Alan Marshall, really terrific producers. And the way Paul kind of looked at his relationship with me was, uh, you know, he, he always said that he, he envisioned himself kind of like as the conductor of a symphony orchestra. And in the case of Starship Troopers, the bugs kind of had the place of the first violin and the violin concerto. And so, you know, it was imperative for him to make sure, and the producers to make sure that I had everything that I needed to do the best work that I possibly could. Not with the intention of making Paul look better, but just to make the, the movie the best thing we could possibly uh, do. So, I, I, you know, they, they backed me up a lot. I kind of find with a lot of younger novice directors, that is not the case. They tend to be nervous and they micromanage and they worry about shit they don't need to be worrying about. And the work comes out not as good as it could. And uh, but when you're working with these, you know, pros and and Lucas and Spielberg were, you know, exactly the same way. They were really inclusive and supportive, and you know, allow you to do your best work. Yeah, I definitely think that coming from that era where you know CGI effects, as much as they weren't really in their infancy, that we were just seeing CGI effects, you know, all the time in in big budget films. I certainly think twenty two years on. You know, that film still holds up. But what would you say has been the single biggest challenge you've faced in your career as a special effects artist? Oh, I would definitely Starship Troopers, without a doubt. And of all, you know, the, the, the creatures and characters you've brought to life on the, on the big screen, which one are you most proud of and why? Yeah, I don't, I don't think of it that way. You know, it's a little bit like your children, you know, it's just like, I, I kind of put the past behind me really quickly when, when a film is done, I kind of, you know, you're putting so much effort into this stuff, I kind of feel like a victim of a violent crime. I actually get, like, the equivalent, I think you find it with a lot of creative people, if they've been working on something for a protracted period of time, like really hard, you get kind of a postpartum depression. And so, you know, you kind of wipe out your memory, which actually kind of works for you. 
because then you're whenever you get a script and start talking with the producers and the directors and the writer, you approach the material freshly as though you never, you know, you know, just with a blank slate. And then you can really, you know, that that can really, you know, kind of spur your your creativity. So aside from you know your work for the motion picture industry, you, you do a lot of work that you describe as being outside of commercial culture. Is this your way of kind of letting loose your, your inner artist, free of any constraints of the Hollywood system? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been working on that for the better part of thirty years, and that was kind of my antidote to the day job. You know, I was a lot more interested overall throughout this time. You know, I was, I was a fan of sci-fi and horror and war and war films and all that kind of stuff when I was younger. But as I got older, I was, you know, I was really inspired by a lot of European filmmakers in the 60s, like Bergman and Fellini, and, um, and their takes on narrative. And so I, I wanted to do something that was, um, you know, that was different from the conventional Hollywood three-act structure, and that was more motivated by the unconscious. And, uh, and so that's just like a different kind of road that you have to go down. I mean, every time you choose a, a form and a methodology, it kind of dictates itself. And Mad God was such a thing. We, uh, one reason uh, it took me 30 years was, you know, because I had to do a lot of it myself. But the other was that I needed to go very slowly and, and just kind of grow the thing out of nothing, kind of bit by bit. And let it become the thing that it, it that it wanted to be, uh, as opposed to what you're doing in your day job, which like everything is ruled by schedule, money, and, and intention. And so I just kind of wanted to break that cycle and and just see what I could come up with if I just had a completely different working modality. Over the times so you've been working on Mad God, you've you've uh, you started off in 35 millimeter, and now you're using digital. Is that correct? Oh yeah, everything. I, I, well, when I started shooting that God, yeah, I shot the first eight minutes of it on film, and then it kind of blew up, and the digital revolution hit, and my wife and I had a couple of kids, and so that intervening twenty years was really where I did all my homework and studying, you know, Freud and Jung and all sorts of, you know, esoteric psychologies and, and religions and myths and stuff like that. And then approximately 10 years ago, once I had, you know, my own studio and resources to make Mad God, a lot of the guys that worked for me were guys that were inspired by the work we had done earlier in Star Wars and Robocop and whatnot. And they had missed that, that train, but that's what they wanted to do. But now they were digital artists. and. Um, so uh, they actually convinced me to restart Mad God, and now I had some really skilled creative people to help me work, and then I took on volunteers, and it just it kind of just took on a life of its own. So, like 99% of the work in Mad God has really been physically done um, in the last 10 years. But uh, again, that 20-year hiatus really wasn't a hiatus. It was like it was really where I, I think I did all the conceptual work for Mad God. So clearly Ray Harryhausen was a big influence on your career trajectory. What's your favorite piece of work that Harryhausen brought to the big screen? Oh, definitely for me it was the Cyclops. Mm-hmm. As soon as he, like I was saying, as soon as he comes out of the cave, I was, I was hooked. Yeah, I was that, that by far. 
And, and with regards that you know your own peers, um, you know in in the special effects industry today, what what work from them do you most ad- admire and why? Uh, you know, well, anything Dennis Murin touches turns to gold. You know, so you know, I I would say that he is clearly at the top of the field. I mean, now there are so many skilled and talented people uh, out there working. Um, you know, but if you look at, at a legacy and, and over time, and then, you know, Dennis is like, you know, you know, probably I'd go so far as to say like the greatest, you know, special effects, you know, designer supervisor that there ever was, you know. Do you like the, the fact that you've inspired so many people yourself as well? It's gratifying. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that's most gratifying is, uh, you know, I've taken on a lot of volunteers to help on Mad God. You know, I, I would go give talks different places and, uh, uh, you know, local people, high school students and college students and, you know, other people in the film business will come and, uh, you know, uh, um, it, it, you know, through no intention of my own, turn into like a kind of a program of me mentoring people. I mean, I don't teach anything, but I just kind of you know, show by example, and, you know, it was, you know, helped develop a, a couple of really terrific stop-motion animators that were just, just starting out, and uh, so, you know, that's all, you know, I think the very the gratifying part, because so much of my, where, getting where I am now was a result of, you know, so many mentors that were willing to take the time with me to just be exposed to and hear their stories and see their working methodologies that um, that that's really what you need. I mean, I, there was no school, you know, to go to during doing any of this stuff. And I, I couldn't afford to go to film school. And so I could afford to go to the UC. Uh, I couldn't afford USC, which was a film school. Um, uh, getting a, a, a education in the arts was actually, there were two things. One of them, I had to go to school because the Vietnam War was going on and I was about to go there. I got a student deferment. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the other was the, getting an art education benefited me far more than getting a cinema history. I mean, that was, a, you know, I got cinema t- history working with all these amazing directors and producers and writers, you know, so I got, I got that for free. But uh, our art education was, uh, I don't think I could have lived without it. It really became the language that I used because all these guys, you know, that, that you work with, uh, you know, that are filmmakers of a, a really pretty darn good art and, and film history background. So it really facilitates communication a lot. Obviously, I know, Phil, it's, it's the middle of the day there and, you know, we don't want to keep you from your work too long and we really do appreciate your time. I've just got one more question. Back back in September, we saw the trailer drop for Mad Dreams and Monsters. What was it like having a documentary made about your career and, and how did that come about? Uh, well, Alexander Ponset and Jules Pinso, uh, I have known for, you know, I've known them for like 10 years. And they, they did um, a documentary on Ray Harryhausen that I uh, was interviewed for, and then they made the Frankenstein complex, and I was one of the characters in that. Uh, you know, it was about a, a you know kind of a, a period in time where you know it was about people that made monsters. So I, I was one of those guys, and we got uh, really close. And they were going to write a book on me, and uh, they would come out and while they were shooting their other shows, and they would stay with me at my house and um, for a couple of weeks at a time, and they they just 
saw so much material that I had. Whenever I'm done with a job or anything, like all the drawings I've done since I was a kid, I just throw in the boxes and throw them in my attic. And so they're just kind of like kids in a candy store, and they just kind of lived at my house and just scanned everything and interviewed me. And so over a period of, you know, like a number of years, they, they really got to know me and, you know, let me feel comfortable and kind of knew the right questions to ask. And, you know, the the people, you know, particularly, you know, my wife, Jules, who doesn't get a great deal of exposure, is, at, you know, really pivotal to everything that we've done, you know, with the studio. Uh, so, you know, she gets some exposure. So it, it's it was really great to to, you know, get that kind of stuff on screen. Well, you know, it's, it's thoroughly, you're thoroughly deserving of it, Phil. And if I could just say on, on behalf of everyone at the Film 89 team, we're really grateful for you giving us your time today. And, and more importantly, thank you so much for your contribution to film. We're, we're all huge fans of Star Wars and Robocop. We've we've grown up with these films. I, I can just th- I thank you from the bottom of all of our hearts for just creating things which have just they helped make us fans of film and it's just remarkable work you've done and yeah thank you very much and thank you for the time this afternoon sure well i appreciate that thank you guys so there you go steve mr phil tippett uh definitely one of our um big sort of movie heroes growing up would you agree absolutely absolutely that was a real honor yes i you know you, you literally cannot put a finer point on how important you know some of his contributions to cinema have been i mean you know the battle of hoth for crying out loud ed 209 from my personal favorite film you know of course he's the guy that's you know carried the torch of the late great and just all-around iconic ray harryhausen and of course he was a um, dinosaur supervisor which i always love that dinosaur title. one of the greatest titles fantastic isn't it hollywood history it's as if he's like an animal wrangler, like they really had the dinosaurs there. Yeah. Well, there was a rumour that somebody actually posted that you only had to do one job. Yes. And of course, they all escaped. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, in keeping with the theme of tonight's episode and our esteemed guest, we put out the social media for you guys and girls to send us in your favourite visual effects sequences from film. But of course, myself and Steve are going to be discussing our own as well. So, Steve... Do you want to go first with your number five? My, my number five is, this is a film that I've spoken about a lot, and I did a wrong reel episode on, you know what it is. Let me guess. Go on. Is it about Big Giant Ape? It is about Big Giant Ape, and the scene is it, I'm is thinking it Mighty about, Joe Young? <laughs> it's not Mighty Joe Young, no. And the scene I'm thinking about is Great King Kong versus the T-Rex. Mm. one of the first great special effects action sequences, one of the first great action sequences in cinema history. Yes. One that, well, we are 90 years almost um, later, and my jaw almost, you know, it still drops. Yeah, 96. Uh, it was 33 80s, years, mate. Yeah, so, so 1933, uh, my maths is absolutely So that's appalling. 86 years. 86 years ago. Absolutely. Generations amazing. have come and gone since. Yeah, it is. Your number five, stop motion. It is. My yes. number five is also stop motion. If I was going to put anything by the late, great Ray Harryhausen, it would have to be, I didn't go for the skeletons, didn't go for the skeletons. I actually went for Talos from Jason and the oh, Argonauts. Okay. Out of all of Harryhausen's creations, Talos, you, there's no sort of frightening reveal. You you see him immediately. Mm. You know when when they uh, you know the Argonaut pulls ashore this island and you see all of these. They go into a cave to to steal some treasure. I think aren't they? So this 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 boat lands and then you know they 
they go into this treasure cave of the gods and and sta- well, standing motionless outside is this giant statue of uh, of the god Talos. And, and it's just the way that once they've been inside and although they're you know they're, they're aware of the fact that they shouldn't be taking anything from there and and they're escaping with things they've they've, they've taken like one of the characters takes a big giant hairpin doesn't he of, of one of the gods which ultimately is is what they use to de- to defeat Talos. but it's the way you see Talos and there's almost an imperceptible move and, and a noise of, of kind of like like wrought iron rubbing against itself and the fact that he doesn't just spring to life he slowly comes to life and it's just absolutely just jaw-dropping and that's more that's scarier i think it is it is yeah. just seeing the fact that well it's just a big statue and all mm. of a sudden it's like holy cow did mm. that move definitely what you you could go on all day about how great that you've got medusa so many just amazing characters that he created but yeah for me talos is is, is one of the most memorable so what's your number four steve my number four is well i started um, stop motion from the 1930s the birth of cgi the film that made me realize how beautiful cgi could be i'd already seen it a couple of times in uh young sherlock holmes and the Pyramid of Fear, which I think was the very first CGI Hollywood film, wasn't it? And then he was in Willow with the morphing technique. Yeah, it was. But then yeah. Jim Cameron used it in the Abyss. The Abyss, the water the pseudopod tentacle. Pseudopod, yeah. Because even now, how many years it is later, uh, thirty years later, thirty years later, yeah, it still stands up. Mm. The special effect still works, and it's such a beautiful effect. And I think that CGI at its very best is very, very beautiful. Yes, it is. You know, in that moment when we first see the Brontosaurus in uh, Jurassic Park mm. or things like that. I mean, moments like that, it reveals something new to us. Yeah. And We'd never seen anything like that before. No, no. And the interesting thing is, as much as that was ultimately done by ILM, the first person that Jim Cameron approached to try and do this water tentacle was, of course, Phil Tippett. Yeah, exactly. And he was going to do some sort of go-motion uh, creature, and they were going to overlay a sort of optical uh, layer of, of water, which they'd filmed, over this stop-motion tentacle, or go-motion tentacle. Tippett... Uh, said that very quickly he realized that it was just it wasn't almost unfeasible yeah, yeah, he, yeah he couldn't have done it and he, you know i think then they were referred over to dennis muir and ilm who were able to come up with this just you know like iconic piece of imagery and you know cgi kind of just not, not so much exploded but it was it was kind of like a that was a really important stepping stone wasn't it yeah and it, we are so privileged that somebody like james cameron he was the first one to push it with the Abyss and then with T2 yeah. Judgment Day and he used it in the right way it's been used in so many bad ways since it has yeah and yeah. You know, I often say whenever you, you see a scene where you have millions of ants or creatures coming out of a hole that's yeah. not scary it's no. not real it's too fluid it's yes. too you know the motion is not real but this it, you know this just Jim Cameron has yeah. uh, and he knows what he's looking for and he, he, he yeah, it's indescribable. And the fact is, because he's, he's he's not trying to recreate something like dinosaurs. Obviously, that would come later. But he was re, he was creating a water tentacle, something which in itself cannot physically exist in the world that we know it. Obviously, something that was very alien. And and you know, from that point of view, and it, it also incorporated the morphing effects that we'd seen a year before in Willow. Yeah, because yeah. obviously the flat sort of tentacle morphs into the face of Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's character. And her performance in that scene, because today we know yes, what to expect of CGI and the actors yeah. know. They, her and Ed Harris, they did not know what no, to expect. They, they, they didn't were, know what they, they were They were looking, I think, a reflective ball on a stick yeah. and, and reacting to that. Absolutely amazing sequence. 
My number four, I'm going for practical effects now, and I'm going to the work of two of my absolute favorite special effects technicians, Rob Bottin, uh, and, and in this instance, ably assisted by the late, great Stan Winston. It's from The Thing, of course, the yes. film, obviously, which I've spoken about you know, great lengths on the third episode of this podcast. It's the dog scene. I could have gone for the incredible defibrillator scene, which a that's lot of people tend to go would, for. Yeah. I've gone for the dog scene simply because that's the one that it's the most disturbing if you're an animal lover. Mm. And there's just imagery in that which just completely floors me. When the creature becomes the most, you know, at its most fully formed you know, amalgamation of all these poor dogs, and there's a bit of the end just before Childs is about to blast them with a flamethrower, and the whole thing bursts open. This big, I don't even know what it is, appendage comes out and opens up kind of like a, a flower that looks like it's made of the tongues of dogs but with teeth on them. And the way it moves and the fact that it's, it's all so completely alien and completely disturbing and totally messed up, it, it's just incredible. Absolutely incredible. And the thing will and, and still does stand as, as the, the kind of pinnacle, I think, for practical makeup effects alongside you know, other films like you know Rick Baker's work on An American World for London. One of the greatest transformation scenes ever. Yes. Yeah. So what's your number three, Steve? My number three is a very subtle one where if you were to... Well, the first time I ever watched <gasps> yes. the film, I don't I just, think I, just I actually... scribbed a look at your notes. <laughs> yes, I don't think I actually realised it was a special effect yeah. when I first saw it. And when it's pointed out to you, you can't help but go. Whoa. I still don't know how it's done. I know, I know. The scene—it's the scene from Contact, mm-hmm. directed by Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, and it's the moment where the young Ellie, played by Jenna Malone, finds her father collapsed on the floor. She knows that he's got heart problems. Yeah. So she's got to rush upstairs and get the, his tablets. Mm. And the scene, it's a steady cam shot. She's facing the camera at all times. She runs up the stairs. Then she turns left onto the hallway. Yeah. Everything slows down because obviously no matter yeah. how fast she's running, she's never sure. going to make it on time. She runs into the bathroom. Mm. She reaches up and then we realise everything we've seen has been a reflection in the mirror. Because you think it's basically like a steady cam dolly shot of a cameraman yeah. sort of running backwards with her running in towards the camera. But what we're seeing is the reflection of her. It, it Physically, it doesn't add up, does it? Well, it can't because it can't. she started downstairs. You, you, you can't. It cannot. It, it's incredible. It's mind-blowing. Every time I see that shot, I, I don't know how it was done. Yeah, she opens the cabinet door and she takes yeah. out the tablets. Then the cabinet door slowly closes yes. and we see a picture of her father. And, and her, th- there and should Ellie. be a transition somewhere, shouldn't it? And it's like, I think there's three transitions. Yeah, oh, mind-blowing. Absolutely incredible. And it's so subtle. Mm. That it does, it's not one of these ones that stand out and say, yeah. look at me. And that's one of the best things about Contact. I know it's a film that I've heard of, of people, friends of ours, who, who just don't like it, don't get on with the film at all. But I certainly think that you, myself, and Hayden... Mm. I'm a big uh, fan. We are big fans of the film. Yeah. I, I really like Contact. I think it's got a lot of... Stu- you know, it's a it's the think-in-person science fiction film. Yeah, and it, we don't get many of those. You don't these days. And Well, all right, you, know, you get stuff like... You, we've had a, a glut of them with Arrival and, and Interstellar, but... You know, I think, but with contact, I think it perfectly walks the line between, you know, you could be an incredibly spiritual person and have very strong religious beliefs and contact doesn't kind of shit on those beliefs. No, no. Because a lot of what uh, Ellie goes through in the film is kind of left ambiguous. Yeah. And you could be a complete atheist. Yes. And still approach it. Absolutely. Yeah. You you know, your, your God could be science and, you know, that film will make perfect sense to you. Because it allows for the fact that, yeah, she did actually physically travel in this wormhole. And, you know, that one scene in particular is, is just absolutely remarkable. My number three, even though obviously we've discussed the fact that 
computer generated effects are overused you've already mentioned one of those films which just really pushed the envelope as far as cg effects back in the early days of you know the development of cg as a tool for special effects was james cameron's terminator 2 it, you know it's absolutely just groundbreaking we have discussed it you know on a recent episode myself and neil we will undoubtedly discuss it on further episodes because it is one of our favorite films agreed yeah absolutely the scene i've picked Every, every time I go back and watch Terminator 2, especially as the years go on, you, you, you try and almost gauge how those effects have aged. And the one that just constantly just holds up to scrutiny is towards the end of the film. It's when the T-1000 has been frozen in the liquid nitrogen and, you know, the Aster the baby, he fires the, the bullet and he gets shattered. Mm-hmm. And then they make their escape. And then slowly we see all of these bits of liquid metal, which are frozen, Obviously, there's a smelting pool nearby, which is overflowing because the you know the steel mill has been evacuated by all the workmen, and all of this frozen piece of the T1000 start to melt. The particular shot that I'm referring to is once all that mercury has come together into a pool, and then we see again as we've seen before in the film the T1000 rising up out of the ground. And there's two shots in particular. The first one where we just see a static shot of the pool with the T1000 sort of rising up in this sort of hunched over fashion, and then. It cuts, I think, to Arnie and the rest of them making their escape. But then we cut back to the partially formed T-1000 rising up out of the floor. But the thing that completely blows my mind is the fact that the camera is panning around the T-1000 as it does so. Mm. And we're seeing reflected in, at this point, the completely or you know smooth, reflective T-1000, all of its surroundings, the smelting pool and everything. Bearing in mind the fact that the images which are overlaid onto that CG thing, you know, that CG character was never really there. All we're seeing is a blank metal floor with a smelting pool. Yet, so early on in computer-generated effects, they were able to pull off such an incredible, complex shot, which is actually you know, a motion control shot as well. So you've got all of these amazing you know, aspects of special effects working in conjunction with each other. It just blows my mind every time I see it. And all coming together, as you say, at the birth of CGI. Yeah, yeah. You know, he had, hadn't even hit adolescence at that point. No. Yeah, this one scene I like, uh, the special effect, and uh, always stands out for me in that movie is when Arnie and the T-1000 are fighting, and he grabs him, hits him against the T-1000 against the wall, yeah. face forward, yeah. and he just... Oh, well, he doesn't... He flip. comes through himself, he, he doesn't he? He just comes through himself. Yeah, he basically yeah. He, he reverses his... It, does a back to front move which who thinks of these things you know yeah. again at the this is the birth of cgi it's the ingenuity it's of, yeah you you you've set yourself the parameters of what this character character can do very early on mm. uh, in an exposition scene where they say you know he can't form bombs or anything with complex moving parts he's basically can a rudimentary weapons like knives and and and, and, and swords mm. and the like you know the way that they use ingenuity to show what this character can do and one of my favourite bits is when, again, in the steel mill fight, Arnie punches through his head and the T-1000 sort of yeah. allows his head to open like a donut, clamps down on, on the hand, and where his head was becomes his his, his, his hands, hands and his shoulder yeah. and, and he just basically reforms in a different position, has now got hold of both of Arnie's hands. It's just... I was going to say it's so fluid, but... Well, it is. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> when I made this list, initially that was my number one. I was actually discussing this list with um, James Pierce, who was on for our Avengers Endgame episode. He mentioned the film, which is now in my number one, because, well, not to give too much away, we've already discussed that film tonight. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll make a list of, of scenes that don't involve anything we've, we've discussed yet. But then thinking about it, 
it's, it's got to be that one but when i'm thinking of perfect special effect sequences it's that one in particular at the end of t2 that for me is just one of the greatest effect sequences i've ever seen and it's an example of cgi done right yes it is it is, it is. so what's your number two steve my number two we've gone way back again to 1931 yeah. and it's a in camera effect and it is from dr jekyll and mr hyde I know exactly. Yeah. Yes, directed Any, by Ruben Mamoulian. Yes. And in the scene, it's through the eyes of the mm. of um, Dr. Jekyll, played yeah. by Frederick March. Mm-hmm. He goes up to a mirror, so we're looking directly we are. at ourselves. Now, this is all one shot, isn't all it? All one there's shot. No yeah. cuts. There's... We, as he lifts up his glass, we see at the bottom of the frame the the edge of the glass yeah. up as, we, as, as if we're drinking it. Mm-hmm. And then he puts it down drops the glass drops he grabs himself across the throat because the yeah. potion is taking effect and all of a sudden he turns from this you know nice looking actor yeah well-groomed gentleman mm. into this devastating creature and his face changes in the camera as we're looking at it now, correct me if i'm wrong steve but is this an effect i think it can only be achieved in black and white photography yes yes yeah, because it, he's wearing makeup isn't he which it only shows under certain colors of light he's wearing different colors makeup, yeah, that's right. and then if you put a um a glass in front for example yeah. if he is wearing red makeup yes and you put red glass in front it hides the, the makeup. yeah yeah sure. and then all they did then was take it away and it's a fun it's such a simple idea when you sit yeah. when you look at it like that but what a fantastic it is and effect. It, it just looks as if he is transforming before your eyes and he's going from a face with no makeup on to yeah. a face with all of this sort of because he looks very sort of gaunt and, and the makeup yeah. he's got like sort of pulls his cheeks in and everything he, he looks like uh oh, what's the name of the, the demon in um in the exorcist uh i'll never remember his name that flashes on that's what he that to me yes. that's what he looks like yeah he does my number two, I, I try to keep as many s- different effect styles as possible on this list, but I've, I've had to go back to another CGI effect, and it's one, again, from that era where CGI was in its sort of infancy, infancy. And you've already mentioned it briefly, but it is the Brachiosaur reveal from Jurassic Park. Mm. Now, myself, Richie Robertson, Hayden, in, in our episode, I think, which we recorded well, nigh on a year ago now, the, mm-hmm. the 25th yeah. anniversary of Jurassic Park, which I think we did last December, you know, we talk at length about this scene. Just as, as overall scenes in cinema, for me, it is one of the most moving, it's one of the most memorable, and, and one that just literally gets me, you know, it gets the hairs on the back of my neck going every time. We almost share the, the same, you know, sort of level of, of awe and, and amazement as, as Ellie Sattler and, and Alan Grant do when they first see that dinosaur. The thing they did really well was they showed us a brief, tiny little bit of the Brachiosaur in the trailer. I think we just see his feet and then mm-hmm. they cut away. But then in the film, when you actually see that full-on reveal, coupled with John Williams' incredible score, it's just remarkable. And yeah, some of the effects in Jurassic Park have aged a little bit now, but they still convince they do, and I, what, what I love about that sequence is at the end you've got uh, Richard Attenborough and his famous line, Welcome, Welcome to, to Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park yeah. And he's not just saying it to the characters, saying Welcome to, to the Park, he's yes. saying it to us because this is changing mm. cinema. Phil Tippett was the, what was it, what was his title? The dinosaur supervisor. Yeah, he was the dinosaur supervisor on that film. Because that early on, if they'd just done CGI dinosaurs, I'm, I'm sure they would have been very convincing, but what Phil Tippett added to those cg effects even though he is not a creator of computer computer effects you know phil phil has said in the past that he he doesn't work with computers i think it's because of his dyslexia he he finds computers very difficult to work with he likes more hands-on practical effects but he's worked with people who are very adept at using computers and obviously he came up with this idea of 
If I can create a kind of stop motion armature that can record the little movements that I program into it, then effectively I can translate what I'm physically doing with this model onto the computer. And obviously being a guy who for years was able to translate real life movement from animals and stuff into these artificial creations and, and animate them in a realistic way. So much of his expertise translates onto the screen and, and that's why these, like when the raptors are, you know, their, their shoulders are moving in a certain way because Phil Tippett has, you know, he studied the movements of animals. That was his bread and butter. And I, and I, I'm sure that it's because of that armature and because of his techniques then that it's developed into what we've got the motion capture these days mm -hmm. Gollum Planet of the Apes even yeah. the Irishman absolutely it all comes from his invention back then it does yeah because it's it's translating real life movements of an actor or of you know like, like an armature into the computer yeah, and yeah it, you know, he has basically created the interface which now gives them the ability to you know make the you know the apes in Planet of the Apes and that, like you say Andy Serkis being a master of motion capture it's all technology which Phil Tippett has helped develop. So that's my number two. Steve, what's your number one? Well, my number one is uh, quite an obvious one, I think. Back in 19... I think it was 1978 when I first saw Star Wars, when it first got, yeah. was released where and where I live. And I would have been about six years old. There was the opening sequence of that. We've got had the scroll, which, mm -hmm. you know, is very similar to what we've had before in, um, you know, the Buck Rogers yeah. and the, uh, you know, the, the old Buster Crab things. That, mm -hmm. And we, we had an idea of what to expect from science fiction mm. because it had been around in spacecrafts and, you know, alien um, ships had been around for many, many years, many decades. But that opening shot, the scroll finishes, we see the stars, pans down to a mm -hmm. planet and a moon, we small ship, which we find out is Princess Leia's ship, yeah. crosses, and you think, oh, okay, that's a good special effect. You know, some um, fire and some lasers and some, ex you know, uh, explosions, and all of a sudden we see the Star Destroyer. Yes. It's not just a matter of it quickly goes over the camera, mm. it keeps them going and going, and I think it lasts almost 10 seconds. Brilliantly parodied in Spaceballs. <laughs> Brilliantly, yes, yeah. The reason I've, I, this is my number one is because... There are lots of moments in cinema where you think, I'd love to be able to go back to that yeah. moment and experience it for the first time again. Mm. You know, I was too young to fully appreciate it at the time. Yeah. But if I if I was my age now, yeah. going to see Star Wars, my it's, toes it's, would cool up. It's like Hayden said you know, when he first saw the you know the Brachiosaur reveal in Jurassic Park. Obviously, we were much older than Hayden when we saw that. That's Although Jurassic Park remains a film of our generation because you know I was certainly only a teenager back in 1993. But yeah, I would love to have been able to be there. You know, can you imagine being sat there in 1977? Well, it would have been 1978 in the UK, I think. Yeah, it was February 78. February 78. But can you imagine there being there on, on May the 25th, 1977, in, in Man's Chinese Theatre, watching that for the first time? Well, it, it, because it redefined what we'd expect from yeah. cinema. Because you know, that the first shot, the small, first small craft, you think, yeah. well, you know, I mean, that, this is a good special effect, this is looking good. But then to see that, and it's so big, it's so epic, and we realise we're not watching the standard science fiction anymore. Absolutely. Something's happened. This is a game changer. And as much as the work that Douglas Trumbull did in 2001 to this day just blows my mind, some of the effects work in 2001 just oh, looks like it was done yesterday. It is. And as much as that's completely just jaw-dropping and... The rotating set mm -hmm. with, with the guy just do, doing his daily jog and, and the fact that it, it defies our sense of sort of gravity and what's up and what's down. Incredible. But yeah, what you say about the opening thing of Star Wars, it's the scale of, of, of it. Mm -hmm. This Star Destroyer is kind of, what is it, a kilometre long? It is huge. Yeah. And it, it's just the fact that we had never, by the, up until that point, seen anything that big depicted in such just jaw-dropping detail. No, and then you've got the music, John Williams score yeah. blasted out, and it's, it's, it is... One of those moments you just want to go back and experience for the first time. It really is. It really is. 
And my number one, it's the Battle of Hoth from The Empire Strikes Back. One of the most amazing things about The Empire Strikes Back is the fact that it's not loaded in the way that a regular three-act film is. No, the, the big action sequence. Yeah, the big action the sequence, the big battle is at the beginning where the good guys get their butts kicked. But the manner in which they did it, you know, you're expecting it's just going to be a bigger and better space battle than the first film. You know, when you think, right, how can we top this incredible groundbreaking film? And they did just pull it down to ground level. As much as there's loads that goes on in space, you've got the incredible asteroid scene. You've got so many amazing shots of, of the Imperial fleet, which. You know, if one Star Destroyer in Star Wars blows your mind, then you, when you first see the Executor, which oh, yes, is yeah. kilom- it's like five kilometres long, it's incredible. But it's that opening battle of Hoth and the fact that, much like you know, great war films like Zulu, where you've got this sort of tension mountain build-up, and then you know, more recent films which have done the same thing, like The Two Towers, mm-hmm. you know, The Battle of Helm's Deep, The Battle of Hoth, the build-up to it, where, and my, my personal favourite shot, even before we see the Imperial Walkers, is that bit where you see the soldiers, the, the, the rebel troops, in the trenches, and they're looking across against, you know, across that flat snow plane, and they just know what's coming. And then, when the one guy picks up his, his macro binoculars and looks through them, you just see these these creatures off in the distance. We don't know what they are at that point, but you can just hear the noise, the, the, that dull thud of their feet hitting the ground. Yeah, it's just a build-up to the scene, and then when they finally... You have that shot of, <clears throat> I think it's five of them, is it? You know, coming towards, you know, the the, the rebel base. And it goes on for ages. It's such a... Well, the genius, it, I think, of of George Lucas in the, and Star Wars as well is that he took something familiar and that was World War Two, something, we, you know, the generations, it was only... Um, was it 42 years later? Um, mm. You know, so a lot of people could still remember World War Two. He was still on the news all the time. He was still yeah. on many, many films made of it. He took that those elements and made it intergalactic. Yes, this battle of you know, Hoth is ground war. Whereas Star Wars was the Battle yeah. of Britain and all that. This battle was the ground war. It was Desert Fox. It was you know, it was all these battles that we were familiar of. And then look what he did with it. Yeah. No tanks, attacks. Yeah, it, it, it's just it's just remarkable. It's one of my favourite sequences in the whole Star Wars canon. One, 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 of, one of my favourite scenes in, in, in all the film, really. Uh, just absolutely remarkable, which is why it's got to be my number one. Excellent choice. So we did put out to social media asking you guys and girls for your picks. And uh, whilst I did put uh, the tweet and Facebook request out a little late, we have had a, a, a really big response. Again, for, for purposes of time, I'm not going to pick all of them, I'm afraid. There is a lot of repetition. But we'll start off with David Simkin at Simpler Dave on Twitter. He's only picked the one, but he says, You're probably ahead of me, but absolutely the skeleton sword fight from Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, and when you see the um, the, the the sorcerer, whatever he is, chuck the what are they seeds or are they teeth that, or, or something from a little bag? Chucks them on the floor, yeah, yeah. and then from wherever they you know they, they sink into the ground, and then he goes, "There's one and another," and then these skeletons just sprout out of the ground, and I, I think seven skeletons versus seven guys, and it's just absolutely amazing you know the choreography where you've got real actors fighting these things which are not dense back in 1963, amazing. Uh, Stephen Simpson, a good friend of the podcast and of Film 89 in general, who's on Twitter, at SteveU7. says, number three, John Chambers' makeup for The Planet of the Apes, the night, obviously the original 1968 version. Outstanding prosthetics for the time and still holds up for me. It does, yeah. Absolutely does. Still the best of the series. Yeah. From number two, he says, everything that is The Forbidden Planet, 1956. Mm. From the paintings to the set design and overall special effects and, of course, the wacky soundtrack. And his number one, he says, 
That award's got to go to ILM for the visual effects in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and in particular, the Mutara Nebula sequence. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I am Jack's Musings on Twitter. He says, the first three that spring to mind are, you like this one, Steve, the screen-dominating Star Destroyer, the signals of the start of the Star Wars legacy, the subliminal shots of Tyler Durden in the opening act of Fight oh, Club. Oh, yeah, yeah. You don't think of that. You don't think of it as a special effect, but yeah, um, Brad Pitt's image was kind of superimposed into these Mm. brief flashes. Not very complicated, but clever in the way it was implemented. And he's got the force perspective, set, props, and camera work in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah, when you think of The Lord of the Rings, you always think of like the big battles and and obviously the motion capture and the stuff with Gollum. But yeah, that use of force perspective to make Ian McKellen look much bigger than, you know, Elijah Wood and the rest of them is just so well used. all, All in camera. Christopher Pruitt on Twitter at CGP1976. He's not picked any particular scenes, but he's picked three films. John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, James Cameron's original Terminator, and then his 1986 follow-up to Alien, Aliens. Mm, Excellent choices. Yeah. Our great friend of the podcast and uh, contributor to the Film 89 website, the brilliant Mr. Bill Scurry, who you'll find on Twitter at William Scurry. He's just picked the one. Oh, in fact, two, sorry. He says, The water tendril in the abyss gave birth to the CGI revolution, and I did an entire video essay about it. Please check out Bill Scurry's YouTube channel, uh, American, American Caesar Salad. American Caesar Salad, and, and check out, well, all, all of the videos are remarkable. Oh, but fantastic. The, the abyss one in particular is, is just great. And he says, Also, and you like this one, Steve, I love the practical SFX stories behind Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula and how his son oh, Roman yes. headed up the effort. Yes. Um, there's some amazing in-camera effects, oh, yeah. like the, the bit the where shadows, the shadows, yes. yeah, where we see Gary Oldman's Dracula, Dracula yeah. you know, conversing with is it uh, Keanu Reeves's, yeah, Jonathan Harkness, yeah. is it Har- Harkness. Har- Harker, Harker, yeah, yeah, and but his shadow is doing something completely yeah. different, like sort of lunging over. Yeah, he's trying to be yeah. the uh, congenial host, whereas yeah. his shadow is quite menacing. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Another uh, frequent guest on Film 89 podcast and contributor to the website is the great John Armino, who you'll find on Twitter at Quasar Sniffer. Kind of kicking myself for not picking this. Um, as much as I, and I do love the Battle of Hoth, you know, as much as any sequence. Alongside that, you could put John's pick of the space battle in Return of the Jedi. Well, at one point, there's a sequence in there was, which was the most complex special effect ever made. Is that the bit where they fly into they, the... There's just everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, it's it's a trap and... yeah. yeah. It's incredible. It's fantastic, yeah. Yeah, and, and coupled with you know John Williams's music in that particular sequence, it, it's just it blows my mind, and it's yeah. still for me the best space battle ever committed to screen. His second pick then is, and you know this is one that we could have easily put in our top five. It could easily have taken the number one slot. Is the werewolf transformation in American Werewolf in London? Yeah, it's amazing and done and painful. Painful, yeah. It looks painful. It looks like it hurts. Like every time you saw a werewolf transform, you know there would be a little bit of resistance. It would look a bit sort of uncomfortable. But the way David Norton is contorting, his hand is stretching, his, yeah, his his jaw is protruding, he's screaming, his and it is done in stark light. Yeah, it, they don't use darkness to, to conceal anything. I think it was done in something like fifteen separate actual effects, different you know sort of prosthetics, and, and you know, you've got the bit where he's lying on the floor and his legs are stretching. And, and aside from that, then the fact that you've got different variations of these, like you've got the, you know the wolf face that extends, and then you've got different sort of levels of that sort of jaw extending out. It's just 
absolutely and remarkable. I, I don't know who did the sound effects, but on that scene, the cracking of the bone chest, yeah. it's, you know, oh, it just does, it chest. feels painful, doesn't it? Yeah. And then he rounds things off with anything in John Carpenter's The Thing, but specifically the chest defibrillator gag. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Got to be fucking kidding me. Incredible. <laughs> and uh, you can't shut him up. He says, I would just like to add an honourable mention to my favourite makeup and special effects sequences. That is any creation from Guillermo del Toro. The creativity and dedication to practical effects del Toro brings to his creatures is second to none, especially in their beauty and humanity. His ability to create a creature along with the special makeup effects artists on his films that elicit sympathy and horror simultaneously is second to none. Plus, his casting of actors like Ron Perlman and Doug Jones to bring those characters to life and to create makeups that are able to carry those stellar performances is a sign of his commitment to this monstrous artistry. Sequences like the Goblin Market and the Forest Elemental in Hellboy 2 The Golden Army and the Pale Man in Pan's Labyrinth are some of the most astonishing displays of creature creation I've ever seen. The Shape of Water's Amphibian Man is a true wonder, an otherworldly god creature made both sympathetic and sexual by the combination of makeup effects and the performances from Doug Jones inside the makeup and Sally Hawkins playing alongside him. Amazing. Okay, I will shut up now, he says. <laughs> no, I, I, I've got a second because yeah. Guillermo del Toro is one of the gods of cinema at the moment, I think. And, um, you know, he didn't mention uh, Crimson Peak there. No, he didn't. Right, no, he loves um, Crimson Peak as well, doesn't he? I, I love that film. The sequence, Still not seen it. Haven't you? Still not seen it. I know. Oh, I know. The, the sequence with the, the, the mother coming and... Uh, Don't spoil around. it. I've not seen no, it. No, it's, it's towards right the very beginning. So, uh, uh, well, Still, I've not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's gorgeous. If, if, if Eager listeners, if they uh, think back to our contest winner, who appeared on our Toy Story 4 Spider-Man Far From Home episode. Good old Chris Bynan, who you'll find on Twitter, at Bilbo Bynan. Yeah, much like uh, Christopher Pruitt, Chris Bynan has just picked three films. He's picked Alien, in brackets, The Scene. The Obviously, scene. he's referring to the chess booster. Yes. What else could it be? Nearly made my list. Number two, The Battle of Hoth. And then he's got, just in general, Evil Dead. Not yeah. actually picking any specific effect, but yeah, given the fact that Sam Raimi was working on a paltry budget, yeah, yeah. it's... You know, Making up as you go along. They were there, they really were. And you know, it looked like a hell of a lot of fun to film as well. I, I read an article today about um, the greatest hand sequences in movies. Yeah. And of course Evil you had Beast of Five Fingers and you had yeah. you know, the Adam's Family. But number one was the Evil Dead 2, is it? Evil Dead 2, yeah, yeah. the hand sequence. Oh. Yeah. And then him replacing his <laughs> chopped off hand with a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. Good old Neil Gaskin, one of the Film 89 crew who you all know and love. He's picked number three. The transformation scene in American Wolf in London. Practical effects by Rick Baker that are still burned in my retinas over 30 years after seeing him. I saw that film way too young. It just, yeah. It, it's, it's it's painful no matter what it age you watch yes. it. His number two is T2. The T1000 emerging from the black and white tiled floor of the mental institution. After the T800, creating something that could be even more terrifying would always be a tough ask. This scene in particular made me feel that it has been done or it has been achieved. The fact that the killer is now so unpredictable and adaptable, it could literally kill you before you knew it was even there. That is what a perfect way of, yeah, that that is is a perfect way of describing what is so terrifying about the T1000. It's because Yes, he's got limitations, but he is so adaptable. And what a tunic is supposed to be infiltration units, stealth units. This exactly. is the perfect killer yeah. machine. And it was a uh, cameo by the twins from Grounds 2. It was, yes. <laughs> yeah. And his number one is, as was one of mine, the first glimpse of the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park. Watching this in the cinema, I literally had the same mix of shock and awe written on my face as the characters looking on from the Jeep. His honourable mentions are pretty much anything by Ray Harryhausen, but I'll plump for the Skeleton Warriors and Jason mm, yes. and the Argonauts. 
the huge reveal of the Star Destroyer at the beginning of Star Wars. So, Excellent show. Nice, Neil. Brilliant. That one scene of showing the size comparison of the tiny rebel ship trying to escape the might of the Empire instantly conveys the massive uphill battle before them. And he says pretty much any Rob Bottin scene from The Thing, but I'll go with Spider Head Guy. Another one from Fight Club. Fight Club's opening gun to the mouth. The, the oh, opening okay. credits, yeah. which starts inside his brain. Yeah. CG effects, but still, what a, a jaw-dropping opening. And this one, which I, I didn't even think of this, but it is one of my all-time favourite effect sequences, is the Barrel of Monkeys Air Force One rescue from Iron Man 3, which works because they actually did about 400 actual skydives with real actors instead of like anytime you see a you know a, a, an artificial skydiving scene it never looks real does it so no, they did no. it for real and just added fiddled around with it in the computer and finally neil's picked the dark knight the reveal of two-face oh yes amazing that's yeah. great really grim our, our, our own richie roberts he's picked number three the terminator now this one surprises mm. me because a lot of people criticize this for being the one scene in the, in the Terminator that looks dated but I'm with him on this one because given the budget of the film, I just still think it works. And it, it, it's the sequence in the bathroom when he's repairing himself. Oh, okay. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, but so many people say that that, that artificial Arnie head, before he puts the gargoyles back on, people complain. They, you've got to think, that was $6.4 million. Yeah, that yeah. was 1984. It, yeah, amazing scene. Number two, The Empire Strikes Back, The Battle of Hoth. And number one, Jurassic Park, the Brachiosaurus reveal. That's a very popular one. Yeah, our ships sail in the same direction. He could interchange his top two, particularly, and ask him, he says, ask me 10 minutes time and I may pick the T-Rex reveal and the attack on the safari trucks or the rogue squadron attack of the Death Star from the original Star Wars or the T-1000 walking through the prison bars in T2. There's way too many to choose from. He says, millions of honourable mentions. I love the use of matte paintings in films and Raiders of the Last Ark with a storage facility and Superman's Fortress of Solitude, to name but two. I also have a soft spot for the use of miniatures. An immediate example being the earthquake sequence from 1978 Superman. Excellent scene. And he makes a good point because matte paintings, that was such a great art form, which we yeah. don't see so often anymore. Yeah. I'm reminded of the one at the end of Gremlins when the old man is carrying um, Gizmo away and it's all one big matte painting of yeah, the town. Yeah, the, the town the with the moon in the background. Yeah, yeah. 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 Matte paintings. And Rocco Joffrey, the matte painting artist, the one who worked on all the matte paintings in Robocop, has, uh, he's started following me on Facebook. Oh, okay. Which is great. <laughs> okay, thank you everyone who uh, sent in your, your, your favourite three um, effect sequences. Much appreciated. Apologies to anyone who did send them in and didn't get them uh, read out. We did have a few that came in last minute, which I wasn't able to sort of sort out in time for recording tonight. Again, this is going to be the part of the episode now where you could probably skip if you want, but we genuinely mean this. Thank you very much for your continued and ever-growing support. We are so grateful with the incredible response to our you know, to our episodes and our stuff on the site. In particular, you know the way that the podcast is growing from strength to strength. It is just really humbling, wouldn't you say, Steve? It is so much appreciate, and all the uh, messages that people send us, and all the retweets, and the you know the the, the little comments now and again, it, it really makes our day. And those brilliant iTunes reviews we're getting as well. Please, yeah. guys and girls, keep them coming. If iTunes is your platform of choice, please make sure you subscribe to us if you haven't already. But if you could just take a few minutes of your time to leave us, preferably a five star review. But um, you know, don't just rate us. Get you know, type out you know a, a couple of paragraphs if you could. 
and tell us what you like. Yes. Please, you know, give us means to improve the podcast. You know, we get so much positive feedback, but please, if there's anything about the podcast you don't like, we are always open to, to suggestion. And you're know, always looking to improve. You know, this is obviously free content that we're kicking out for you guys and girls, but we're, we're going to keep doing it. And the more you help us grow, you know, hopefully like tonight's episode with amazing guests like Phil Tibbet, you know, we're just going to hopefully keep going from strength to strength. So please give us an iTunes review, give us a subscribe, more importantly, recommend us to your friends and family. Well, yeah, because these podcasts are, not, are chats between friends, but it's not just us who are recording, it's all you out there as well. It is, yes. And we do love our listeners and we do love the interactions we have with them. So, Steve, where can people uh, find you if they want to hit you up on social media for a chat? The best place is on Twitter. It's uh, at Welsh Bluesman, uh, all one word. And there's lots of um, film chat on there. You're also on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, yes. Yeah. Steve Nemos. Yeah, you can find uh, me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. And you can find us all on film89.co.uk. You can email us, admin at film89.co.uk. Well, I think that's it, isn't it? It's been a great show. It's been, yeah, absolutely fantastic. We are just so privileged. You know, a legend of the film industry like Phil Tippett, an Oscar, double Oscar winner. Yeah. Two-time Oscar winner. So we really do hope you've enjoyed the episode and thank you so much for uh, support of the recent episodes. We, we are just, like I say, can't thank you enough. And I know I'm just sounding like a stuck record, but we genuinely mean it. And I'm speaking on behalf of Neil, Richie, Hayden and the rest of the crew. So uh, that just leaves me to say, as I usually do, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly... Stay classy.